Well, it's good to be with you this morning. It has been wonderful to worship with you. Thank you, Kristen, for that song. You did not know that that was the title of my message, so uh, thank the Lord for that. Let's open our Bibles this morning to Ephesians 6, and we want to begin in verse 17, and we want to finish uh, the chapter, and this will be the conclusion of, of Ephesians. Beginning in Ephesians, and we're going, we're going to back up. I want to back up into verse 10 so that we get the full context of this passage. <clears throat> Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand in the evil day, and, having done all, to stand. Stand, therefore, having, your, having girded your waist with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Above all, taking the shield of faith, with which you will be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one. And take the helmet of salvation, and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Praying always, with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, being watchful, to this end, with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints. And for me, that utterance may be given to me, that I may open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that in it I may speak boldly as I ought to speak, but that you also may know my affairs and how I am doing, Tychicus, my, a beloved brother and a faithful minister in the Lord, will make known to you, make all, these, all things known to you, whom I have sent to you for this very purpose, that you may know our affairs and that he may comfort your hearts. Peace to the brethren and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all those who love our Lord Jesus Christ in sincerity. Amen. Let's receive this as God's word. Shall we pray? Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the fact that it is timeless. It never changes. Your truth endures to all generations. There's no failure in anything you say or do. But Father, we need your grace this morning as we acknowledge our weakness, acknowledge our need, acknowledge our inability at times, we acknowledge that we have much that you must do for us in order for us to be obedient to you. So we ask, Lord, for your grace to be multiplied to us. 
that you would work in us, Lord, to, to do that work that in the heart that only your Holy Spirit can do. Father, as the Holy Spirit goes through this church, I pray, Father, that we would become inflamed with the truth of your word. That our love would increase for you. Our hearts would burn for your righteousness. That we would be faithful to speak those things which we have seen and heard from you. That we would stand before you one day before the Lord Jesus Christ to give an account and we would be ready. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we come to the conclusion of this, of this chapter. We have had this beautiful journey through the book of Ephesians where he's begun to lay out salvation and all the doctrines of it and how God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit are at work to bring salvation to man. As we came through the, the middle part of the book, we, we saw how that we are to act, we're to work, the things that should be at work in us, the things that we should not be involved in, that we should be putting away, and the things that we should be putting on. That This is part of our salvation, is that we put away the old man and we put on the new man that is renewed in Christ Jesus day by day. And then as we come to this last part, he's teaching us how to stand. He's teaching us how to stand. We understand that we were once under the sway of the wicked one. That he owned us. We were his servants. We were his slaves. He had the right to speak and we did what he said in our lives. If you've been set free in Christ Jesus from his leadership and rulership and ownership, then you now are an enemy to him. And he is an enemy to you. And he wants nothing less than for you to be thwarted and upset and turned around in your walk with Christ. And God here through the Holy Spirit, is teaching us how to stand so that we are not drawn back into the things we were brought out of. I believe in the security of the believer, but I also know that we are, at times, I am, I'm disobedient. I don't always do the things that I should do, and it's God that brings me back to repentance, and He wants to show me how He works in us so that we do what he asks us to do. And not only that, but that our life is actually a glory to him. That our life is actually something that is manifests and explains the gospel to a lost world. The world today is looking for why. Why do Christians live, talk, act differently They're not better people than anybody else at the root. But they've been changed. They've had a new 
work done in them. There's a new life that's been placed inside of them. There's, a, a re, there's been a, a taking out of the old life and bringing into the new. And so in this, time, in this part, he's saying there's, there's things in the word of God that you must be putting on. There's truths that you must be girding about yourself. You must be active in your faith. You must be girding on, putting on the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit. And so, as we look at this, let's take this as God teaching us how to stand effectively in this evil day. We already saw how that he said that we, in verse 14, we have girded our waist with truth. Truth is the girdle, if you please. The girdle on the Roman soldier tied everything together. His sword hung from the girdle. His breastplate hooked to the girdle. His shield had a place to hang on the girdle. The only thing that really didn't have a part was the shoes. But nonetheless, it was, it, the, it was the basic part of his attire. His His waist was girded with truth. And as a, as a believer, every single thing we deal with comes back to the truth. Jesus said it's for the truth. That's so why he told Pilate, it's for the truth that I came into this world. That I may bear witness of it and it took him to his death. If they have done this, to the master of the house, will they not much more do it to his servants? That if we will stand for the truth, it's going to cost us. But it will not cost us what it would cost us to not stand for the truth. This is why of the five men that went to South America and were, were, were martyred, Jim Elliott said, I'm trying to get the words exactly right, but he said, I will, I cannot, so much that we're going to give up what we cannot keep to gain what we cannot lose. We're going to give up. We can't keep this life. It's getting away from us. It's going away from us. But we want to gain what we cannot lose. We can't afford to lose the crown of life. We can't afford to lose our reward. That's something that's more precious than life itself here. And that's how the Apostle Paul wants us to see this. Sliding back into our sin is not an option. And so, he says, stand therefore. And in the end, he says, having done all, stand. This is a battle of the last man standing. This is the battle of the one who stands to the end. It may not be perfect. May not, may not be, we may have our faults and failures brought out, but it's about standing firm to the end for the glory of God. So let's see what he has to say for us, beginning in verse 17. 
the helmet, the helmet of salvation. In this passage, he uses the helmet, the head protection, as, as that which protects us from damage to our assurance of salvation. It, it, it is protecting us with a mind that holds the truth of salvation. A mind that knows the facts, that has gotten into the Word, and we understand what God has said about us. We understand what God has said about His Son. We understand what God has said about what He has done through His Son. And we understand why we're here. Not only that, but this has given us a love for the Lord Jesus Christ. Our hearts are inflamed with a passion to glorify God and to know Him and to enjoy Him. When we were once enemies and alienated, we hated Him. And now we love Him. Whom, not see, whom having not seen you love, and you now rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory. A will that chooses the ways of salvation. This all is the protection of the head. You see, you understand that if Satan gets in your head, he's got the rest of you. Our biggest problem is how we think. And it affects how we believe. It affects what we do. It affects what we love and what we hate. It affects how we choose to live our lives. It affects all those things. Not only is it about a head knowledge, but it's also about a heart assurance. A heart assurance. Salvation's assurance of salvation is a protection for us. We need to know where our security is. Turn with, turn with me, go hold our finger here, but turn with me to John 10. To John 10, and I want to read verses 27 through 30. I know that for many this has been a controversial scripture. But it is key to what Jesus says and what the Apostle Paul has to say here. Beginning of verse 27. I want to back up to verse 26. We know that the Jews were, were not believing him. Verse 26, he says, but you do not believe. And why does he say they do not believe? You do not believe because you are not of my sheep, as I said to you. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and my Father are one. He says... The reason you're not believing what I say is because you're not my sheep. What is, does he say his sheep do? His sheep hear his voice and they follow him. He doesn't do this by external coercion, manipulation, threatening, using harshness, 
but it's by love. They follow him. They do follow him by love. They love him. But let us note, verse 28, I give them eternal life. The thing we must know, if you are a child of God, is that Christ has given you eternal life. It's not five-year life. It's not 10-year life. It's not 25-year life. It's not 50-year life. It's eternal life. It's not a life that lasts until we're almost done and then falls away. The life that Christ came to give is eternal life that goes to the very end and holds us faithful to the very end. He says, I give them eternal life. They will never perish. They shall never perish. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my Father's hand. Out of my hand, I'm sorry. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. And he said, they are in my hand. And nobody is able, nobody has the power, nobody has the ability to take them out of my hand. Now let's notice what else he says. My Father who has given them to me. And let's understand how this, what this looks like. So God the Father took us as the children and gave us into the hand of Jesus Christ. And when God gave us to Jesus Christ as a bride, he says, no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. And if you please, God took us, placed us in the hand of Christ. And if you can break the bonds of Christ and of God, then you can get to the believer and undo his salvation. Folks, that's an impossibility. That's what we must know going into this fight. That's why he says, you need to have your thinking protected with the helmet of salvation, with assurance that God, that God has placed you in Christ and Christ holds you in his hand and no one is greater than him. Not principalities, not powers, not things present, not things to come, not height nor depth, not angels, not things that are, that are present here on this earth. Nothing. It's going to take him, take us from the love of Christ. And so what we do is when we go into the fight, we go into it confident of one thing, that Christ has done something in our lives that in, in eternity, that time will not reverse. We can't undo in time what God has done in eternity. Now, however, we have assurance and sometimes our assurance is not what it ought to be. Assurance is how we feel about this. What we think about this. How we see it. And that's where Satan wants to get in. He wants us to think we don't have something that we actually have. He wants us to think that we're subject to him yet. He wants us to think that we are still on our own. And that's why he says, for a helmet, the hope of salvation. 1 Thessalonians 5 and verse 8 is very clear about that. In verse 8 he says, But let us who are of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love, 
and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. When the Bible talks about hope, it doesn't talk about, well, I wish for something. It doesn't talk about, I, I, I think maybe, I hope it doesn't rain tomorrow, or I hope it does rain tomorrow. That's, that's a wishful thinking. What the Bible talks about when, when hope of salvation is talked about, it means a right and a eager expectation. I expect this to be the reality, my salvation. And what he's simply saying is that at, we have experienced what it means to be cleansed from our sin and to be saved, but we battle in this world where we're, we're fighting the, the influences of the enemy, and one day we're going to have that salvation complete. And so we're looking for that day in hope, in expectation that this is going to be finished one day and I won't fight sin anymore. I'll be in the presence of God where His perfect peace and love reign. And I, I, this is why we must know the truth. It's that truth that must assure us that we are His. Knowing that we are His and that His salvation is ours. Not because I'm so good. Not because I want, even because I want it so bad, though that's maybe the case. I want it, I want it to be that way, but because that's what He said. See, what God has said transcends anything we feel or think. And as we look to Him, our feelings, our actions, our experiences should respond properly to what He has said. And when we respond to what He has said, it fills us with the affection and with the feeling of security. The problem is that Satan often gets us to not respond, to respond in a way that's not right. And God wants us to, to, to learn what it means to put that helmet of salvation on, to learn the proper response to hear his voice and follow him. And as we do that, we will not experience defeat. The world will hate us. Because it hated Christ. Assurance is fed in our hearts as true fruit is growing from our lives. And if we go, I'm not going to take the time to, to go there, but if we go to 1 John 3, verses 13 to 15, he says that the one who is born of God loves his brothers. And he who does not love his brother is not born of God. That's one of the signs by which we can know we belong to God. Do you love those whom Christ has redeemed? Then that can be an assurance to you that God is at work doing something greater than you. And it can be a means of saying, yes, I'm weak, but I have his salvation. You realize that this is one of the things that's impossible for the world to do. They cannot love truly the children of God. In fact, they hate them because they hate Christ. And so the reality is that we must, we, must, we must say yes to what God has said. 
And we have, it, it will give us grace to face the truth and to, and to face the enemy. Whatever is opposite, whatever opposes the fruit of the Spirit is of Satan himself. That's how true the fruit of the Spirit is. If it poses or stands against the fruit of the Spirit, it's not of God. There was a man, a cardinal in the Catholic Church by the name of Robert Bellamy. Back in the 1600, late 1500s, early 1600s. Of course, was against the Protestant movement, <clears throat> against the work of grace. And here's what he said. The greatest of all Protestant heresies is assurance. I want you to stop and think about that. Anybody who wants to persecute the church of Christ is going to see assurance as the greatest enemy and the greatest heresy. Why? Because it's the protection that God gives His children. Assurance is why the martyrs went to their death with worship in their hearts, with songs on their lips, praying for their enemies, giving love to those who hated them, encouraging their brothers and sisters while they were being chopped asunder, sawn asunder, burnt or drowned or whatever it was. Folks, it's that assurance that protects our thinking about what God has said. It's that assurance that will say, yes, I know that I may experience death, but there's a life that awaits me. That's why we have failed in this day to stand against the wiles of the devil is because we don't know the truth anymore. Straight doctrine from the Scripture is not held to or preached. And we're not faithful in giving this doctrine to the lost. And when we back away from the truth, we give place for something else. And so I encourage you this morning, do not let Satan separate you from your knowing Christ and knowing His work in your life. I want to ask you this morning, is your mind properly grasping the truth about where you stand with Christ? Is your mind properly grasping the truth about where you stand with Christ? This is one of the things that Apostle Paul said over and again, that you are to know where you are. You are to be rooted in the faith. You are to be grounded in Christ. You know, one of the things we don't want to do this morning is give assurance to somebody who doesn't have the truth in them. That's a, that's, that's, a, that's, a, that's a bad problem because if you are assured and the truth is not in you, then you're just believing a lie and you'll be deceived. That's why Jesus said that many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name? Have we not cast out devils in your name? Let's put in there, have we not preached at Bonnaroo in your name? And they will say unto me, depart from me. Why? Somebody finish it. I never knew you. 
The truth was not in you. It didn't do anything in your soul and in your life. And for those that have a false assurance, that will be a terrible day for you. That will be such a disappointment because you've labored, you've sweated, you've toiled alongside the true Christians, and yet you will be denied the crown of life because Christ is not your Savior. You are trying to be your Savior. That's why Jesus said, they're my sheep, and I lay down my life for my sheep, and I give them eternal life. When there was an exchange at the cross... Christ gave Himself for us and took upon Himself our sin so that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. And He was condemned by God as guilt as a sinner, though He never sinned. That is why God's wrath has already been poured out for every child of God, and it was poured out on our Lord Jesus Christ. This is why, having not seen Him, we love Him. He took that wrath for us. It was our wrath. Destined for us. He took it upon himself. It's that that we must know. Do your experiences and affections bear in them the fruit of the Holy Spirit? Does your, does you, do what you do, what you experience in your affections in the Christian life, do they bear fruit of the Holy Spirit? Unless they do, we have to ask ourselves the truth. Do I have the root of the issue in me? If the fruit's not there, is the root there? I don't mean, do you have, could you say, I'm not talking about, could you say, well, I could be better at this, or this could be different, or this could be, we can all say that. We could all say we, could, we should pray more. We can all say that we should be more in the word than we are. We could all say we should testify and witness more boldly than we do. I'm asking, is there any fruit there? And what you see there, is it yours or is it God's? Is it what I have done or is it what God has done in us? Brother talked this morning about how his faith has increased as he looked back over his life. He saw that God was at work in him. That's exactly what he's, what he's talking about here. Assurance of salvation is the strength. That will keep us in love with Christ to the very end. The hope of seeing Christ and being with Him was far greater for these people. And you could say for the Apostle Paul, the hope of seeing Christ and being with Him was far greater than the present affliction and trouble that he was in. We must go into the battle with that mindset. It doesn't matter what this is going to cost me. The temporal cost is just temporal cost. What will, gain, will be gained will be eternal glory. Eternal life in His presence. Let's move on. Let's go to the, to the sword of the Spirit. Not only are we to take up the helmet of salvation, but we are to take up the sword of the Spirit. This is the only offensive weapon that He gives us. 
Everything else is to defend ourselves, to protect ourselves. And he gives us this weapon to, to use offensively. This word of God, this sword of the Spirit. And we're going to turn to Hebrews 12. I'm sorry, Hebrews 4, beginning in verse 12. I'm sure we know this by heart, but let's just go there and let's look at it. Hebrews 4 and in verse 12. As we understand what the Word of God does and what it is. He says, For the Word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. I want us to understand that the word of God that we have must, is, is a sword that must be turned upon us. It must divide rightly in us. And only as we understand where the word of God divides and how it divides, are we going to be able to understand how it should divide and what it should say to others. Many people take up something out of the Word of God, and they, and they take one verse or two verses or one, one section, and they hold it up and above the rest. But if the sword will do its work, if the Word will divide where God divides and pull together what God pulls together, then we must get behind the Word and let the Word do the work. If I'm in charge, if I'm trying to take control of the Word, and I want to dissect it the way I want to dissect it. Then I've called myself God. And he's got to be subject to what I think of his word. But what we need to do is lay ourselves on the operating table. And this word must dissect us. It must cut us open and do the surgery. And the grace that God gives from his word is far greater than the injury that comes by his divisions. One of the things that we must understand is that our problem with our sin is that we, we adhere to Satan's doctrine. Satan's doctrine, if we go back to the Garden of Eden, has always been. He's going to put together what God has separated. He's going to make indistinguishable what God has distinguished. And he's going to... Then he's going to divide what God has put together and he's going to separate what God has put together. The truth of the matter is that when we take up the word of God, we're taking up God's mind. And Satan's doctrine has filled our minds so that we don't think as we ought to think. And it's the word of God that undoes, divides clearly what God has given us and he straightens our thinking out with it. I'm not here trying to straighten your thinking out as much as I want God's word to take root in your heart so that God can put you where he wants you. The reason that they fell to, to Satan in the Garden of Eden because they did not separate where God separated. They did not distinguish where God distinguished. They could have all the fruits of the garden. Every one of them, except from that one tree. 
God put a division, he put a distinction, he put a separation there. He says, don't eat of that. And what did Satan do? He made so that it was just to be like any other tree of the garden. You, can, you, you ought to be eating of this. See, our problem lies in the fact that when we, when we understand Satan's scheme so well, we don't see what the Word of God has to say. And when Satan puts his, gets his scheme worked in our lost souls, he, puts a, he builds a fortress there. There's a palace that he takes over. He takes over in the mind and in the heart. The word of God is to be able is, is to be used to take those fortresses down, to cut them apart, to 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 de- divide between soul and spirit, to rightly lay open all that has been hidden. Because that's the way he sees it. It's all open to him. Let's turn to 2 Corinthians 10. In 2 Corinthians chapter 10, we have this passage that is so so enlightening. uh, It demonstrates uh, what God does through his word. And let's take a look here at what Apostle Paul has written for us here. 2 Corinthians 10, and let's begin in verse 3. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but are mighty in God. For pulling down strongholds, casting down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ, and being ready to punish all disobedience when your obedience is fulfilled. I want us to look carefully here. Paul is speaking in figurative terms. And he says, we're in a war, but we're not warring like with guns and with missiles and with bombs and with swords and spears and arrows. But what are we, it's, a, it's not a warfare in the flesh. So it's not going to be a battle according to the flesh. Do you understand that? When we battle, we have physical activity that goes on. When we war in the spirit, it's not dependent on how good we can battle. It's dependent upon what God has said and what he is doing. So it's a different kind of warfare, and it has to be fought in a different manner. Let's look at this. The weapons are not even carnal. They're mighty in God. They're spiritual weapons. It's the Word of God. See, what Satan has done is he has brought in arguments. Those arguments are really the philosophies, the ideas Uh, that are against God. For instance, in the garden, God has not said that you should not eat of the tree. God knows that the day you eat of it, you will be like God's. Where did that come from? It was a philosophy that Satan sold to them 
and held, they held up as something they wanted, and, they, and, it, and it brought them to disobey God. You see, those things are planted in us ever since that, from, from, from day one after the fall. Every human being is born with a mindset to the philosophy that Satan would sell to him. Some people are exposed to it more. Some people are exposed to it less. But it does not rid us of the fact that we are bound by birth to think and to submit to the philosophies and the ideas of Satan. That's what puts the fortress in our, in our heads and in our hearts. That's where strongholds of wickedness come from. And, and you got to go more deeper. you got to go deeper than just trying to get us to quit the outside actions. If you don't go to the heart and deal with the fortress in the heart, you don't deal with the problem. For years in my garden, I've been cutting off this stuff called Johnson grass. And so this year, I kind of went after some of it with a vengeance trying to see if I could get to the root of the issue. Boy, that's a job. Because when you dig under the surface and you begin to uncover what's in that, I know now why those things don't die. There's a, there's a thick root that's like a, like a branch of a tree under there. And when you cut one off, it sprouts another one somewhere else. And all you have to do is break that and it'll grow a sprout off of that. You see, the word of, that's, that's a little bit like the way our sin is. There's a root there. There's a tree underneath there. And all you do when you chop the fruit of it off, you say, well, I put this guy in a reform school. Or I put him in a, in a, in a, in a better behavior program. All you did was take the outside off and it's just going to sprout new and more fruit. That's devastating. This is why people give up hope because they never got to the root of the issue. They never went to the root of the problem. Why? Why am I so inclined to think what Satan wants me to think? To think against the word of God? To disobey God and I don't love the Lord God more. It's because we're dealing with roots. We're dealing with roots that are embedded from our birth and they go along with our human nature. And our human nature loves them. But what does he say the Word of God does? The Word of God does what? There are, our weapons are mighty in God to pulling down these strongholds. And notice it's casting down arguments, casting down these philosophies. And when Satan puts together the things that God separates and he separates what God has joined together, the word of God comes along back through and says, no, here's the division, here's the truth. And when God divides this way, he uproots and does away with the core issues that have been causing the problem. Word of God dismantles these lies. It takes apart these strongholds. It takes these fortresses and smashes them. The problem is 
We like the fortresses sometimes. We like them. So when the word of God comes and it smashes the fortress, we take it personal that God is smashing us. God is dealing with the root of the issue. And he asks us to be separated from that. In fact, as believers, he has cut off our responsibility to those ideas and those fortresses. We're not responsible to go after them anymore. We do not need to or nor should we obey the temptations of Satan because God put a new root in our lives. That root is Jesus Christ. And that root is growing. That fruit is being produced. And it's just, as it grows, it it pushes out the ungodliness. As I I always have said before, everybody, everybody needs a food source. And everybody needs a trash pile. That means you need to be taking in the food and you need to be getting rid of the trash. You need to be growing and putting off. And as this happens, the Word is what makes us able to see what's truth and what's error. It divides where God divides. It puts together what God puts together. That's what we want. That's where our life grows in abundance. And so he says, take up the sword of the Spirit. Because you must understand that this is the only source we have to know God. I know people like their visions and dreams. I know people like to say, well, the Lord told me this and thus. And I'm not going to get into that too deeply, only to say, get your instruction here. This is where God speaks. In fact, this one, one brother told me one day, he says, if you want to hear the Lord speak out loud, read your Bible out loud. That's God speaking audibly. Because when God speaks, He is never wrong. When we hear things in our minds, sometimes we're wrong about what we hear. Sometimes we're wrong about how we perceive what we hear. Sometimes we're not right in what we want to do about it. But when we go to the Word of God, we have what God has said. And that's why it's important that what we grasp is the sword of the Spirit and not our own. It cannot be the fabrication of the sword that I have made, even if I've engraved the Word of God into it. Satan knows how to defeat that. Satan has never defeated this word. Jesus used it when he was tempted in, in, the, in the wilderness. And it was effective. So will it be effective in us if we will rightly divide and apply this word. The Holy Spirit has been given us. This is the offensive weapon of the Holy Spirit. This is what the Holy Spirit makes alive in us. In John 15, and we're not going to turn there, on time turn there, he says, 
the Holy Spirit will take the things of, he said he will take what is mine and he will teach it to you and reveal it to you. And literally is what God has said. What we have from the apostles is what God had desired for Christ to give to the to them when they were disciples of his and and the Holy Spirit revealed it to them and taught it to them. And that's why we call this the inspired word of God or rather the breathed out word of God. This is what God said. I realize it's written many times in narrative form, there's other things included, but the the, the intent and the content and the and the and the the doctrine and the teaching and the, the truth is for us from God. So I want to ask you this morning, do you know God's word? Do you know it? Are you in it? Do you meditate on it? Are you constantly looking to the word of God to divide what you cannot understand should be divided and to put together what should be put together? Do you obey God's word? Do you act on what you hear and know from God's word? Do you love it? And this is for me. Do we love it? Do we obey it? And do we know it? Lastly, let's look at the supplication of the Spirit. Verse 18, he says, Praying always with all prayer and supplication. Always praying. Jesus went to the, to, the, to the mountain alone to pray to his heavenly Father. It was a greater necessity for him to pray to his Father than it was for him to sleep. He prayed all night on the mountain. You know, would to God I would see prayer as that kind of necessity. That I would be giving up my sleep or I'd give up my food or I'd give up whatever I needed to give up so that I could pray to God. But praying doesn't come out of a vacuum. Notice he says, praying always, at all times, in all places. Nothing's excluded here. Everywhere, anywhere, all the time is good, is what we should be doing with our prayer. Praying on your feet with all prayer. You know, when Christian in that Bunyan's, uh, John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress, Christian's walking through the valley of the shadow of death. And he can't see. So he can't use what he knows from the Word of God, but he hears many things going on around him. And he hears, he feels the pressures of Satan upon him. And he, and he senses that, that he's being, he, he could be just swept away by, by the lies. And he hears all these voices in his head. He became aware of the fact that he needed all prayer. All prayer. He said, I must take all prayer. Only God can know what's going on in my mind right now. I want to tell you, friends, this morning, <coughs> God knows what's going on in your head before it even comes to your head. He knows the thoughts that we're going to think before we think them. The words we're going to say before we say them. Let's get into all prayer before the battle comes. 
pray with all prayer while the day is, is at hand. You're going to come to the point of the night where that daytime prayer is going to, is going to be of so much benefit to you when you can't see what you're doing. Prayer is essential. What does that prayer look like? It's praying with all prayer and supplication. Supplication is that word entreaty, and you children had that in your, in your lesson a few Sundays ago where you, were, where, where you were taught to entreat the Father, to ask the Father for those things in the Lord's Prayer, that we're to entreat Him for our daily bread. We're to entreat Him to lead us out of the, away from the evil one or out of evil. And that's what entreaty is. It's asking the Father... And in this case, being watchful with all perseverance <clears throat> and supplication for all the saints. And it, seems, and it seems like Paul is calling all of them to assume the place that Christ assumes. To watch. Now, I'm not talking about headship. I'm talking about his, what he does. He watches over the church. And he's calling us to have the same heart and attitude that we watch. Not to be critical, not to be, not to be mean to our brother or sister, not to be unloving and unkind, but we are to watch for the things that would hinder the grace of God, and we're to pray about those things. We're to pray about those things. I was talking with one of my boys last night. I had a praying grandmother, and uh, my dad's mom, and he will tell you that she prayed for her children and her grandchildren every day. And my son, we were this staying there one time, <clears throat> so my son would be a great grandma, grandson. And as he was walking past her chair, he saw a piece of paper on the chair, and he looked down and saw his name that she had written on that paper. I wanted you to know something. She had 10 children. She had 61 grandchildren. And she had, at that point, over 140 great-grandchildren. And she remembered them all every day. Do you know what that means? It meant so much to me to know that not only did she pray for my dad, she prayed for me, and she prayed for my son. Brothers and sisters, that's what we want to raise up, praying people. She couldn't, there was a lot of things she couldn't do at that time anymore, but she could pray, and she prayed. I believe her, <clears throat> she is with the Lord today, and I believe her reward is great. He's asking us to be in supplication for all saints for everybody who's a child of God. Every saint is dealing with something somewhere. And if they're not dealing with it now, they will. And if they haven't, if they're not going to, and they're not now, they just come out of it. So when you know there's a brother or sister that's in, in need and hurting, there's only one person who really can do the right thing about it, and that's God. Pray. 
praying with all supplication and prayer. Verse 19, praying for utterance. The word utterance here means the ability to speak for God. Praying for the ability to speak for God. That means that we must pray for it for ourselves so that when we're put to the test, so when we're asked, so when someone inquires or we're put to the place where we, must, where we speak out, that we speak not for ourselves but for God. He says that we are ambassadors for Him. Meaning that we are here in Christ's stead. There's a, there's a job He's given us to do that He's not here present in the physical sense. But He's asked us to open our mouths and to, and to speak His truth. And to stand on it. And, and, and He says, pray that utterance may be given to me. That freedom... To speak boldly the truth without hindrance of my flesh, without hindrance of opposition from without, and without the, the encumbrance of the things of this life, but that God would give us boldness to speak as I ought to speak. And we're to pray for that ability. Not only are we pray. For that ability to speak. But what is Paul saying that we should speak? He's saying that I may make known the mystery of the gospel. This is the content of our speech. It's the gospel. Analogies without all these things that hinder the gospel. But go to the word and speak the truth. It means giving it the way it is, shooting straight. Sometimes things have to happen here in my mind and in my heart before I can speak the truth. And he's saying, pray that for whoever is to speak the truth that they may be able to. That there's an ability given by God there. That the truth can come forth without hindrance. All believers have experienced the reality of the good news. If you're a true believer this morning, the reality of the good news is yours. You know it. And therefore, therefore you are now an ambassador. You are now an ambassador. And you are to speak for God. You are to live for God. You are to show the world who God is. That's what he's called us to. And he says we're to pray that we be able to do this. You see, God enables us to do what he commands us to do. We have people who are harsh commanders. But they want you to draw from your resources to do what they ask you to do. God says everything that I ask you to do, I'm enabling you to do it. I'm giving you the ability to do it. Is praying a constant thing for you? 
Are you praying for your wants and wishes? Or have you become immersed into God's will so that you now pray for His work, His will to be done? You see, if I'm immersed in my own wishes, in my own thinking, my, what I want, I'm blinded to what God is wanting from me. Are you praying for others who are also being sanctified? Sanctification is a hard process sometimes. And are you praying for others? I want to tell you something, young men. I found out in my life in a young age, and somebody else taught this to, told me this, and so I'm just passing on. I'm just one beggar passing on bread to another. When you deal with lust and wrongful thoughts in your mind, find somebody who's out there proclaiming the gospel and pray for them. Get on your face and confess your sin and then pray for that person. You're going to do two things. You're going to fill your heart with not just about yourself, but you'll fill your heart with the needs of somebody else. But it's a tactical, it's a tactical move. You're putting pressure on Satan out there when he's trying to put pressure on you in here. And when you do that, when you get the habit of, into the habit of doing that, it's effective. You'll be amazed at how you can put away the old habits because there's, there's right ones being established. It's not all about habits, but God empowers you to make those habits. He empowers you to do those things. You need to pray that He would work that work in you. Do you regularly pray for those who are publicly proclaiming the gospel? Are you praying that you and others would be faithful to God as ambassadors of His, that, they would, that you and them would be able to speak for God? And have you, have you prayed for boldness to proclaim God's word? Lastly, I'd like to look at a summary, at the summary of concluding blessings. I want us to note, verse 21, that you may know my affairs, how I'm doing. Paul had friends that wanted truly to know how he was doing, and he wanted, and he wanted, to comfort them. Do you see the mutual love? When this is how we live, we're going to be able to have friends and believers like-minded. But I'm going to tell you, if you're going to live for yourself, it's going to be about you all the time, that's the kind of people you'll draw. But I want us to note, these people were concerned about Paul, and he was concerned about them. That's the way the church must operate, brothers and sisters. That we must have our brothers back, and he must have ours. That we must live together with love and compassion one for another. Not only this, but Paul got to work alongside of faithful men. Notice he said, Tychicus, a beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord. 
will make known all things, will make all things known to you. Paul got to work alongside of men who were faithful to the Lord. Listen, it's this living, it's this work of the Holy Spirit that produces faithful men and women. And when he produces faithful men and women, other faithful men and women want to come along too. It works that way. Faithful men and women are not looking for unfaithful churches. Faithful men and women are not looking for unfaithful preachers. Faithful friends are not looking for unfaithful friends. When you're faithful, you want others who are also faithful. And I would encourage you, let's be the church, the faithful church that cares about more than our own little world. But we truly care about the gospel and each other. Lastly, Paul had a loving relationship with the church and he blessed them in it. Notice he says, peace to the brethren. Love with faith from God, Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all those who love our Lord Jesus Christ in sincerity. He blessed them. He had, he had good to give them, and he blessed them with it. We have, in conclusion here, the salvation and the Christian life have been addressed in this book. We live in a fallen world, and we're looking for a new heavens and a new earth wherein righteousness dwells. As Paul concludes this, this, this book, let us remind that let's remind ourselves that while he wrote about these glories in Christ, and he wrote about how things are in Christ, and he wrote about the truths that we can anchor our souls upon, he did this while he was in prison. All this came from his time in prison. Listen, all of God's children are going to suffer. But I want you to look at the wealth. The wealth that we have been given because somebody was suffering. John Bunyan wrote his Pilgrim's Progress when he was sitting in prison. And when he got out, he said he, was, he actually fell asleep. That's when he fell asleep. And he went on dreaming. He came back in. He was able to write the book again. So the prison, though it was a, though it was a suffering, it was a blessing because it enabled him to write. So it is with suffering. Suffering is not just evil for the Christian, but God works it for good. And in the Apostle Paul's life, he worked his prison for good to the churches and now to us. God is the only one who can take the crooked stick of sin and bring straight truth and righteousness out of it. And so let's remember that as we, as, as Christians are called to suffer, it is for the glory of God. God's going to do something right with it. If we suffer for his sake, we will also reign with him. Let's not think that if we follow Jesus faithfully that, he, that we will escape the suffering. But let us be filling our hearts with these truths 
Let us be obeying them so that when our time comes to suffer for his sake, we will be able to do so with joy in our hearts for our God. Let's pray. Father, bless this word to, your, to our hearts. Lord, make us able to receive it, believe it, and obey it. Keep us from falling. And Lord, may you present us faultless before the presence of your glory with exceeding joy. Amen. You may be dismissed.